a human life is too short for learning how to live a human life. Yeah, it's a good point. We, we don't have time to make up and come into contact with all of the possible uh, uh, experiences, uh, all that has been thought and named unknown. We just don't have time to do that on our own. And so the, the religions and the wisdom traditions store that knowledge for us, and they, they give us this map. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today, Paul is speaking with Jungian analyst Jason Smith. Jason is a past president of the C.G. Jung Institute, Boston, now the C.G. Jung Institute of New England, and currently serves as a training analyst and faculty member for the New England Institute. He is the host of the podcast, Digital Jung, and the author of the book, Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life. Jason is in private practice in Manchester-by-the-Sea, Massachusetts. Hi, everybody. You know, there are books so deep, so rich, so intense with soul speak that even a sentence can spin me into a deep contemplative meditation for hours, days, months, or even years as I travel through wormhole after wormhole, accumulating more and more understanding, more and more meaning. Here is one of such numerous passages from an amazing, powerful, and important book for our times, Religious But Not Religious, by Jason E. Smith, a Jungian analyst and our special guest on Living 4D today. A symbol is more than just a particularly elaborate or esoteric image, and is so much more than simply an idea expressed in image form. It is, rather, the expression of a field of psychic energy. As I noted earlier, this field can manifest through images, thoughts, feelings, behaviors, situations, and objects. A symbol, then, might be thought of as an extension of a unit of life energy. It is for this reason that Edinger suggested that it was important to approach a symbol as a living thing. Put another way, a symbol is not something to be interpreted, but rather something with which one enters into a relationship. Through the encounter with symbols, our psychological system is infused with vitalizing energy that supports and furthers our engagement with life. When an individual is in a conscious relationship with the symbolic dimension, life is meaningful and abounding with the energy of purpose. Now, if that message doesn't send you into deep meditation, <laughs> then Check for a pulse, baby. I so enjoyed dialoguing with Jason E. Smith on such important topics as his life path to becoming a Jungian analyst, the four functions of religion and their correlation to mythology, why it may be that humans have sought God and religion for as far back in time as we have anthropological records, the difference between authentic religion and corporate religion, what it means to be religious but not religious, what a myth is, and why human beings have a deep need for the numinous, for mystical experience. Jason is an honest, heart-centered man who speaks from the depth of his life experience and wisdom as a union analyst, and I hope you enjoy learning from him and growing in this process as much as I did. Enjoy Jason E. Smith as we discuss his amazing book, Religious But Not Religious, which I personally feel is an approach to life very needed in today's world. 
Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today, I am very excited to share an author and a Jungian analyst who wrote a book that captured my attention in the first few paragraphs. And by the time I got a chapter or two in, I jumped up out of my chair, tracked him down, and offered to interview him. His name is Jason E. Smith. The book that I was reading by him is titled Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life, and it's stunningly beautiful. Jason, welcome to Living 4D. Yeah, thank you, Paul. Thanks for inviting me here. You know, um, I, I really felt your books not only important in any era, but particularly right now with what's going on in the world between the political unrest, the COVID environment, the uh, manipulation of freedom of speech by Google and Facebook and related companies, the challenges with social media, censorship. Uh, you know, to me, it looks like we're in a myth transition of significance. And having studied Jung and, and many Jungian analysts and, and had uh, uh, time to interview James Hollis, uh, I just think that some of Jung's concepts could be very, very helpful if brought into the light of public awareness. So I, I really wanted to talk to you about some of these things. And I think with all the stuff going on right now, um, people that understand what religion is and embrace religion in its authentic form can be greatly supported through this process. But those that are caught in what I call corporate religion and heavy polarities and hell and damnation can actually find themselves feeling very scared, very confused, and maybe thinking it's the end of days, uh, which is pretty a common reaction for people at that level of conscious development. So before we begin, Jason, with the topics of the book, I'd love it if you can share a biographical overview of what led you to becoming a union uh, analyst and having an issue interest in the issues of religion. Sure. Um, it, it was not on the radar for me. Uh, and I had been working actually originally as uh, an actor. I'd been very active in the theater. Yeah. And it, it, it's it's actually not so far off from where I end up because as a actor in theater, you're interested in human development, right? You're interested in what makes human beings tick. The thing that kind of tipped it for me was a, a gift that I got. Someone handed me a, a book of Joseph Campbell's work and uh, I was totally captivated by it. I know and the feeling well. <laughs> it was a, it was an amazing experience that made me realize I'd been thinking about things and uh, having having these questions without really knowing that I had the questions. And so I just uh, I was off and running. I read everything that I could get my hands on with Joseph Campbell. I read it all, including uh, this edited book that he has, which is called The Portable Jung. And that, you know, sent me off on the next tangent following Jung's work and, and reading Jungian psychology. 
But my initial response was both sort of simultaneously, this is it. This is where I want to be. This is what I want to do. But there's no way on God's green earth that I'm ever getting there. That's so far away from who I am and where I am that it's just not going to happen. It seemed like this great fantasy. Um, And it took a long time to kind of slowly inch my way towards it. And, you know, step by step, kind of uh, realizing that it was closer in my grasp than I thought it was. And, you know, at the same time, it, it, it coincides with an experience of getting that book, that initial book, coincides with this experience, like I said, of knowing all of a sudden that I have these questions and recognizing that I had very much a religious sensibility from the very beginning, but no language for it, no way of communicating it even to myself. And so that language from Joseph Campbell and from Jung uh, opened everything up for me. Uh, so it was a, a, an amazing gift that, you know, probably the person who gave it to me has no idea how that changed the trajectory for me. Isn't it amazing how a person can touch our soul so deeply and you know, often I call these soul contracts where, you know, it's kind of like the Buddhist master. Uh, somebody goes up to the Buddhist master and says, Master, if I study with you, how long will it take to become enlightened? And the master <clears> says, it may take 15 seconds and it may take 35 years. It's up to you. <laughs> right. Meaning that, you know, the book was the touch from the, from the you know, the mysterious master uh, the connection between souls. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. It, it, it's it's the key that opens the door. Uh, there's the messenger. Uh, I've had a number of those experiences where it's literally an offhand phrase from someone someone walking past me that makes me go, "Oh, okay, that's the next thing I do." If you notice that and you can follow that, it can be. Uh, pretty amazing in terms of what it opens up for you. Yes, I believe there's my experience in life is that there's a golden thread connecting all the events of our life. But I found in my work uh, as a therapist and, and a lifestyle coach and trainer of elite athletes and many other such things that we oftentimes don't have the depth of perception to see that golden thread until we reach a certain level of of uh you know either conscious growth or spiritual maturity but all of a sudden we look and see even in the darkest times of our life there was something meaningful being generated that ultimately made us who we are so we could get to the places and meet the people and be for those people what we were meant to be yeah yeah absolutely absolutely i'd love it if you could uh overview the functions of religion i noticed uh right away that you had imported uh, joseph campbell's four functions of myth uh to be the equal of four functions of religion and i i I know those very well because i too have studied many many joseph campbell books (laughs) and love him and so um 
I, I don't think very many people in the world actually are conscious. I don't, I've, you know, I've got, uh, friends that are pretty evolved and, and, uh, I can't, I could count on half of a hand, the people I've met that actually understand the four functions of mythology or religion. So I think it's a great place to lay the groundwork for the rest of our discussion. So uh, I'd love to just let you run with it and give us an overview of, of what religion's really supposed to do for us. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, the, these concepts like the four functions, uh, that in itself, just that little section of, of Joseph Campbell's work, if you dig into it, it gives you so much. Um, and it, it's almost hidden in a lot of what he writes. But I did. I, I grabbed it and uh, using his idea, because he's a mythologist, that, that myths could be understood as other people's religions, that, that he's really talking about a religious sensibility. Uh, I kind of, like you say, I imported it. And really what it's all about is uh, how we relate to ourselves, to each other, to the world and the universe around us, and to the mystery of being. Those are the four areas that myth or religion directs us to. To our own depths, our, ourselves, to how we connect with each other, to our place in the world, and just the mystery of existence. So the the four areas um, are the psychological function. I call it the psychological. Joseph Campbell goes back and forth between psychological and pedagogical. And he talks about it as, right, he talks about it's the thing that through which we learn about how to uh, live our own individual life uh, and come into relationship with our own psyche. And one of the things about this for me is that uh, I remember one of my teachers saying, uh, a human life is too short for learning how to live a human life. Yeah, it's a good point. We, we don't have time to make up and come into contact with all of the possible uh, uh, experiences, uh, all that has been thought and named unknown. We just don't have time to do that on our own. And so the, the religions and the wisdom traditions store that knowledge for us. And they, they give us this map for how to understand what we're going through in relationship to how that appears in general for human beings uh, all over the world. And uh, of all ages and all times. Yeah. And of all different races and cultural backgrounds and, and, uh, mindsets. It's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a panoply of experiences for sure. Some of the various authors that I've studied have suggested that we reincarnate through each of the world religions so that we can actually understand life from each of those perspectives so that we can actually get a sense of wholeness of what life really is. And uh, 
other authors speaking along the same vein say we reincarnate through each of the 12 signs of the zodiac for the same reasons but uh you know whether a person believes in reincarnation or not the the real issue is back to the point that you're right one human lifetime is very very short to to even begin to get the depth and the meaning that life is offering us absolutely absolutely and and there is that wide uh scope and each culture each religion uh is complete in its own way, but also is incomplete. They're not interchangeable, but they give us uh, uh, all together uh, a kind of wholeness that that we can, we need to have some connection to, some understanding of. I think that, uh, you know, my experience, and I've studied world religion quite a lot because as a therapist, repeatedly i kept tracking people's behaviors and what got them the choices that got them into trouble with diet lifestyle relationships etc right back to religious beliefs and i found in my work that so many people had confused understandings of their religion or would often quote bible passages to me not knowing that i've studied this stuff quite extensively and 99.99% of the time, their interpretation of what that meant was dangerously distorted and was directly connected to their own um, harboring of guilt, shame, and uh, negative emotions that were often showing up linked to cancer or things like irritable bowel syndrome or any number of things. It was only when I could really help bring them some more light and some more clarity and, and give them a broader context within which to interpret the scriptures that they were hanging their, their choices on, was I able to actually move them forward to long-term healing? Mm, right. Right. Yeah, it's such a, a, a delicate relationship uh, with the 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 scripture, the information, the knowledge, the wisdom that's there, whether we impose on it or we let it touch us. And that's that psychological dimension. Can we let ourselves be initiated by that and therefore changed by it as opposed to try to sort of force it into a worldview, our perspective that already exists? Did you know that research shows that Americans are spending $4 billion a year on cold and flu medicine? That's 4,000 times a million dollars. That's a lot of money every day on cold and flu medicines when really there's a better way. Organifi Gold is an all-natural organic superfood tea with superfoods known to boost immunity through better rest and sleeping. Relax easier and increase immunity with all-natural superfoods. Deeper sleep and a more relaxed state of mind are vital ingredients to optimizing one's immunity. My kids don't like to fall asleep because they don't want to miss out on anything, and that can make for some grumpy kids, but they both love Organifi Gold, so we all get excited when they request it at night, and it works. If you'd like a great-tasting, naturally sweet drink that can really relax and nourish you, then you will love Organifi Gold. I sure do. Organifi Gold contains the following organic products, turmeric, ginger, 
reishi mushroom, lemon balm, turkey tail mushroom, magnesium, black pepper, piperine, coconut milk, and Ceylon cinnamon. I love Organifi Gold. My family and friends and clients love it too. And if you're ready to get great sleep and awaken feeling strong and ready for your day with the beauty that only sleep can give, then Organifi Gold is not only for you, but it's a great way to make sure you're getting a deep enough rest to recharge your immune system. And we all know the importance of that today. Go to Organifi.com, that's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com, and on checkout, use the code, capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K, 20, that's check 20, to get your Living 4D 20% discount off Organifi Gold and any Organifi product that you'd like to enjoy. I love Organifi, and I know you will too. I think the word you use that carries a tremendous amount of potency is forcing it. And my Mm -hmm. experience of religion myself, my mother began as a Christian scientist, which is a very intensely polarized uh, religion where there's no belief in the medical system and a variety of other things. And um, then she became a yogi and joined the Self-Realization Fellowship under the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda when I was 12. And for the first time, I could get any question I could ask the monks answered in clear, intelligible ways instead of being told to be quiet. And Uh. I found that, um, you know, the monks were so easy. And as a kid, I remember sitting in the pews of a Christian church and it was very, very confusing to me because one minute they were telling me that God is love. And the next minute they were telling me God will burn me in hell if I do this or that. And as an eight-year-old kid, I couldn't see the logic in that. And so I would ask people questions and I wouldn't get an answer that made me feel safe at all. And I actually reached the point by the time I'd, uh, my mother had transitioned to yoga I'd reached the point where I was actually scared to death of adults because I kept seeing that things that were just common sense to me and, and obvious, like, why do you want to believe in a God that'll burn you in hell that also says it loves you? That sounds like a dangerous <laughs> relationship to me. So in my own head, I was like really scared. I, I actually had periods of a lot of fear and anxiety and unfortunately my father drowned when I was eight and my stepfather was very violent. So um, it it was just the greatest blessing when my mother switched to yoga or self-realization fellowship. And I'll never forget one of the most profound experiences in my life was my first time sitting in in a self-realization fellowship temple and they begin the ceremony and the monk leading the ceremony introduced the ceremony by saying heavenly father jesus christ paramahansa yogananda sri yukteswar lahiri mahashai babaji krishna saints and sages of all religions we humbly bow to you all and it was like a wave of peace ran through my body and it was the first time i'd ever been exposed to any kind of spiritual teachings that were inclusive of not completely and utterly against 
other teachings. And it really had a, a deep healing effect on me. Just that, just those opening words and it's never left me. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, it's beautiful because it's this something very fixed and hard all of a sudden becomes opened up and something flows, right? Life flows. Uh, that peace that you feel flows. Uh, it's, it's amazing. It's a lovely. Thing. I just, I felt, I felt in my own little 12 year old head, I really just felt a sense of hope. Maybe, maybe I'll survive all of this, this crazy place called Earth. Right. <laughs> At least I have some place to go where I can get my questions answered and people aren't going to belittle me or beat me up. <laughs> right. But, and that, that, but that's the whole ball of wax right there. Hope, possibility that we, there's a, it's okay to be here. That's so crucial. Especially for children and having spent years researching world religion and looking at all the ills I've had to work with in my patients and how many of them were suicidal and it tracked right back to stress from parents over religious must-dos, uh, you know, sinning and, and all these other types of things. I just... Um, I really feel that, um, you know, I, I'm, for example, I was researching and I came across this uh, summer camp for, for Christians, for kids. And they had like an hour video kind of showing what the kids go through. And it was literally designed to scare the living hell out of kids. It was like going into a haunted house and it was just one set after the other where the devil tries to get you and all the things that'll happen if you touch your genitals or break any of the commandments. And by the time the kids come out of that place, they just must, they're, they're, they just must have, uh, their small intestine must be tied in knots and they must just be scared to death of God. And I think that to scare children and, and put it, uh, a barrier between them and God is the most unreligious thing you can possibly do. And I have studied documentaries showing how the kids in the regions of Islam in many regions have to study the Quran intensely and memorize it word for word, or they may get punished or they get belittled. And I'm like, that is not religion. That's indoctrination. And it's not healthy. It's extremely dangerous. And we'll talk more about the interpretation of scriptures later because a lot of the interpretations being passed on to children and young minds are far from what they're meant to be uh, based on, you know, the, the more enlightened interpretations of them. What do you feel is the etiology of our urge for religion? It seems to me that it borders on being instinctual to us, considering that almost every culture studied by anthropologists have left religious artifacts and indications of a religious orientation of one form or another. And that includes shamanism, um, which is really the, the root of religion. Although if you try to tell 
a lot of religious people that <laughs> your religion emerged from shamanism. You, you might as well have <laughs> criticized them severely and or stole their car or something. Right. Yeah. Jung has that sense that it's instinctual, right? That there is a religious function of the psyche, that there is uh, a kind of instinct in us. And it does seem to me that it comes with consciousness that comes with this capacity that we have to step back from life and think about it or reflect on it or look at it. And the moment you do that, you start to notice things. The quality of our attention shifts, not just from satisfying some impulse or some desire, but we start to wonder about what's around us. And for me, I think that idea of wonder and awe is uh, key. It's 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 core. You know, we're we're used to approaching the world through our reason, through our rational mind, and and that's an amazing ability that we have. But reason and the rational is this attempt to make reality, to make the universe conform to our mental categories, right? We adapt the, the world out there to our minds. And wonder goes in the other direction. We, we adapt our own experience to the world out there. And, uh, it, it's not something that we know more about or we have power over but we're kind of blown open blown away and and for me i think it's that core experience of wonder that uh opens us up it's the the heart of things like art it's the heart of things like philosophy and it's the heart of ethical behavior which comes out of a sense of the sacred that something is sacred and should be uh, uh, treated as such, that we should behave towards it in a particular way. And it's all of that sense of awe that, that I think is the, the core uh, and at the root. Yes, and oh, sorry, I was just going to say in Joseph Campbell's four functions of mythology or religion, as you've posted them, there's repeated mention of maintaining that sense of awe in in response to the magic and the mystery of life. And I think I think most people today have completely lost that. It's as though they've got their nose so close to the television screen they can't see the picture. You know, right, right, absolutely. It, it, to to keep that sense of awe, which is also a sense of, I have no idea what this is, right? Not knowing, rather than trying to master it and control it, to be, uh, to hold that space of, of wow, of I have no idea what's going on, the mystery of things. That's very hard and uncomfortable for many people to stay in because it makes us, uh, it relativizes our experience. The, the world is bigger than us. The universe is bigger than us. 
Uh, it's bigger than our minds. And, and that's very, very humbling. Yeah. And the ego is a control freak, as you know. So anything, you know, the, 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 the issue of mystery and wonder is you have no idea what's going to happen next, but the ego wants to know it's going to get its airplane flight and it's going to land safe and it's going to get its paycheck and its partner is going to show up and still be in love with them. So, you know, I'm, I, I'm a, a medicine man and spirit guide and have conducted hundreds of healing ceremonies with plant medicines. And, you know, you, you really see how people when facing a mystery get often very, very nervous and anxious and can't relax and generally, the more wound up they are, <laughs> the more of an ego encapsulation they're about to uh, experience the dissolving of. And so it's you know, the ego's kind of a, like I said, it's a control freak and it likes to make sure it controls the outcomes of everything because it has this illusion that it's creating safety for itself. But we, I think you and I and anybody with some life experience knows that that is an illusion <laughs> it is, and it's not working very well for most people. Right, right. It's absolutely an illusion. And that's the other side too, which is that we can't avoid the dark side of things. We can't avoid the falling apart of our carefully constructed worlds. We can't avoid suffering, loss, uh, these uh, realities around us, and their mysteries too. Death is a, a an enormous mystery. Um, it gives some color and meaning to life, but it also has its own reality. And so that also opens up this place of questioning, of uh, humility before the mystery, of uh, as you said, uh, not knowing where things are going to turn out and, and how it's going to proceed. If we want to become authentically ourselves, you know, that's, this is another great, uh, Joseph Campbell line is, you know, in order to have the life that's waiting for you, you have to give up the life you've planned. Amen. That's there's a, there's another saying too. <laughs> if you want to make God laugh, tell him you've got a plan. <laughs> right, right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> the only thing I don't like about that is it's tell him. I would I prefer to say tell her because as I tell my students all the time, I don't know why they keep referring to God as a man because that, it doesn't take a lot of intelligence to see that men can't give birth to anything. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. That's absolutely right. But that whole plan, exactly, just trying to control it and being able to move forward uh, when the plan falls apart and say, okay, something new is happening. That's a real achievement. You know, I reached a, a point in my own spiritual development. I'm 59. How old are you? I'm 53. 53. So I'm a little older than you, but I reached a point. I don't remember exactly when it happened, but, you know, I've been through a lot of deep, deep, profound experiences. I've studied with a Tai Chi master and did about 18 years of daily Tai Chi, and I was trained in Qigong, medical Qigong and, and uh, did, you know, too many very carefully planned and orchestrated 
medicine ceremonies for my own spiritual investigations, but I got to the point where it dawned on me one day. I imagine I was probably in my late 40s, early 50s, but it dawned on me that every single time I've had a painful experience, whether it be a divorce or I went through a bankruptcy or something, whatever the kind of negative stuff that we always dread showing up in our life. But all of a sudden, one day I realized every single time something like that's happened, usually within a day or two weeks or a month, something amazing happens. And I'm, I realized that, you know, it really reminded me of something Napoleon Hill said in, um, I don't know if it was in Think and Grow Richer as Bigger book, which is more of a comprehensive manual, but he said, behind every cloud of gray is a silver lining. And it was, it took me that long to finally realize, okay, whenever the shit hits the fan, I got to orient myself toward the silver lining and know that there's a gift hiding in this. And uh, having studied a lot of Arnold Mendel's works, he talks about how people are afraid of chaos, but they don't realize that the whole universe came out of chaos when you study creation myths you see that that's a very consistent theme and he says if you just become present with the chaos you'll find it's full of all sorts of useful information but you have to be present with it in order to gather and gain the information you can't be reactive and run from it absolutely absolutely it reminds me of the Rumi poem the guest house where he talks about yeah, you know, i love they, that one they come in and they take all the furniture but let them come because yes. they might be sweeping it out to make room for something new for what's coming next. Yes. I've, I've got the entire collected works of Rumi. I think I have about 70 something thousand poems by Rumi in my library and been studying him as long as I've been studying Jung. And in fact, uh, I uh, connect to him through my soul regularly. Um, and he's a great resource. I'll tell you, he's a, uh, you know, one of my favorite uh, Rumi, uh, poems it, it has a line and it says no man can get to god until he becomes a heretic and i said bingo <laughs> yeah right it's great yeah you know what he's saying is you can't become enlightened or have a real mystical or deep union experience by reading words on a piece of paper those are symbols pointing towards somebody else's experience, not your own. And that's one of the real problems, I think, with all religious scripture that's being interpreted as, as literal when really it's people forget that's somebody else's experience. And often it's actually a myth that carries much deeper messages than what they're reading. And because they don't realize that, they end up just putting themselves in all sorts of pain, especially the children have to be the brunt of all that confusion. Well, I think that's that's right. It's it, it, that that idea of being a heretic, of letting go of the, the image, at, at some point letting it go. I mean, all the mystics talk about this. Meister Eckhart says, at some point you have to leave God for God. Uh, that, Amen. that the, right the, the idea and the image is in the way it's a it's a help it's a guide but it it ultimately is in the way and that's a constant theme with with the mystics that you have to uh look beyond 
uh, or let it go, um, not be attached. Kill the Buddha on the road. If you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. Yep. Most people don't understand that, you know. In other words, that just confuses people that aren't mature enough in their own conscious or spiritual development. But really, for those listening, what that saying means, if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him, means that Buddha, which means love or the awakened one, cannot be uh, embodied in, a, in, a, in an individual. It's uh, open to the collective. It's It's a state of awareness it's a way of relating it's not something that can be put into a person which is exactly the problem when uh, christianity turned jesus into god it's the same phenomenon right and jesus himself at one point says do not cling to me he says that to mary magdalene but if you read that in a way it's don't cling to me go beyond Hi, everybody. I'm sure you've all heard of the benefits of bone broth, but I bet you don't know about bone broth protein powder. I found an awesome bone broth protein powder with Paleo Valley, and I asked Autumn Smith if she'd explain why hers is so good from Paleo Valley. Well, like you said, collagen is basically the fountain of youth, and most of us are not getting enough of it in our diet because maybe we don't have time to simmer bones on a regular basis. And so we created our powder to make getting the benefits of collagen for your joint health, for your gut health, for your mental health, really, really simple. And we sourced it from 100% grass-fed and grass-finished bones. So it is a beef bone broth protein powder that you can literally put in everything. It's tasteless. I add it to my son's smoothies. I put it into his desserts. You can even put it in soup and get all the benefits of collagen without all of the time and energy and investment. So all you have to do to check it out is go to our website at paleovalley.com. That's P-A-L-E-O-V-A-L-L-E-Y.com. And you can use the code CHECK15. That's lowercase C-H-E-K-15 at checkout. And I hope your family loves it. I know you'll love it. Keep your body healthy. Keep your kids healthy. And let's make the world a better place with Paleo Valley. Enjoy. You know, a thought that came to me while you were talking and we were talking about Rumi's comment, you cannot get to God until you become a heretic. It really lends itself to Jung's philosophy of individuation because until you actually become a heretic by choice, by, by the necessary means of exploration and expansion, you aren't individuating away from what I would call a herd mentality. In other words, your mind is not your own until you become a heretic. That's right. It's this this differentiation and separation from, from the collective, from conformity with the collective. And that doesn't necessarily mean that one has to reject what's in the collective but but you have to have your own relationship to it it has to be authentic not adopted from something else and so separating differentiating differentiating from the deep structures the the archetypal structures of the psyche is another piece of it if you are identified with either collective values or even the archetypal energies you can't be in relationship to them you're just right they're unconscious exactly 
exactly. It's interesting too, because what we're talking about really lends itself to the alchemical stages of separatio and fermentation, because the act of discerning, okay, what parts of Christianity or Buddhism or Islam or whatever your primary programming is, is an act of not throwing the baby out with a bathwater, but laying all the chips on the table. For example, when I look at the Bible, I can find all the passages where it says God is love. I'll take that. You know, that that's useful to me. When Jesus says, lift the stone and I will be there, split the wood and I will be there. That's a clear message that God is everywhere. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to go to a church and put money in a hat to to be connected to God. And the act of fermentation can be interpreted as you don't have to rush to to fix the problem because you don't really know what the problem is. You know that you're uncomfortable. You know that things aren't uh, working inside of you. It's not creating peace for you, but it's very much fermentation. And my interpretation in this regard is very much aligned with Jung's concept of holding the tension of the opposites. Yeah. To to stay in that tension and not collapse it, that's his move, to let the different possibilities, the different uh, impulses uh, play upon the psyche means that we don't consciously resolve the difference, but that something uh, spontaneously can emerge out of that that allows a particular kind of unity, not necessarily exactly down the middle between the, the opposites, but some authentic unity for ourselves where we can hold that, uh, like you say, what what is good and what serves and also where we need to go individually and separately uh, without having to say, uh, I reject that 100%. I, I throw the baby out with the bathwater, as you said. Um, because there there is value. And we have to find our personal relationship to that value. Indeed. And, you know, if we go into this separatio, allow ourselves to ferment while holding the tension of the opposites, I think one of the key teachings that I pass on to people from my own experience is something that uh, Ken Wilbur really helped me give words to. And that is that when we're in that state of holding the tension of the opposites or, or cooking, as the alchemist would say, it allows all these thoughts, feelings, and emotions to rise up into conscious awareness. And if we stay separate from them and witness them like we're watching a television show or watching our dog play in the front yard, then we can look at them without being attached to them. And then they become objectified in the psyche. So now we're looking at our feeling or our thought or our judgment, but we're not immersed in it. So now we can actually put it up, see it and work with it as opposed to just being overwhelmed or controlled by it right we're not in some death battle with it where either it's going to win or we're going to win but we're starting to uh, open a dialogue with it what can it teach us 
what uh, what how much of it can we allow in? How much of our own position do we need to hold on to? It's an ongoing dialogue, and an, and and that can't happen if we're so caught up in it. Yes, and the thing that leaves me very empathetic and compassionate for so many people in the world who are stuck at this level of their development and and don't know how to get out of it. And as you know, it's very hard because most people's whole family is involved in these belief systems. And if you're not ready to stand on your own two feet and you know, and you really can get rejected. I mean, I know you know that. I've had countless patients that have just come to me in terrible shape, physically, emotionally, and mentally, and spiritually, because they were being rejected by their entire family because they got caught reading a book on Buddhism or they talked about their interest in another religion. Um, one of the sad cases I worked with was a guy who was gay and he's in the Mormon church. And they're very, very against that. And he had been in the Mormon church his whole life, but it took him till he was 35 and he just could not take the pain of being in the closet anymore. So he asked for a meeting with the uh, minister of the church and he told them the truth and they immediately kicked him out of the church. And when people in his community found out his family went crazy and pretty much everybody knew him that knew him went crazy and and just rejected him and left him in a very dark place and my my concern is that when a person doesn't have the kind of awareness that we're talking about when you look at the kind of programming in the abrahamic religions it can leave a person with absolutely no hope because who out there hasn't sinned with regard to the constructs of the commandments or the dictates of any of these religions so a person can be left thinking, why bother? I'm going to burn in hell anyhow. I can't undo my masturbation. I can't undo the, you know, the, the wrongdoings I've done. There's, there's, you know, for a lot of people, there can be a sense of hopelessness. And I think when the environment starts to get crazy like it is in the world right now, you couple the stress of that and the confusion of that with a person who already has an unhealthy fear of God. And it, it, it lends itself to high suicide rates and high anxiety rates and high depression rates. And although people are looking at the issues of the day from these perspectives, they're not looking at the fact that the issues of the day are being perceived through the filters of religious programming that don't often equip people to handle the undulations of life. Right. Well, and it's, it's the programming, uh, and it's that that rigid view, but it's also the the loss of a containing group, right? The loss of a, a place that can hold you, the relationships, the other, and to be cast out like that, to be exiled, uh, has always been the worst kind of punishment. We get put into uh, you know um, isolation, and that's uh that's absolutely traumatic for the soul we are uh, uh relational and so that's part of what keeps people in those suffering situations often as long as as they they stay in them because it's a choice between uh 
it's an impossible choice between sufferings. It is, and this has been going on for a very, very long time. As you know, I'll never forget when I was reading Baruch Spinoza, I studied him quite a bit. Uh, one of my heroes has always been Einstein. I've read three of his biographies and his personal uh, favorite philosopher was Spinoza. So when I found that, I hadn't heard of him. And I studied Spinoza quite a lot, as much as I could get my hands on. And he, Spinoza clearly describes how he got excommunicated for, for the uh, things that he was sharing in his community. And uh, if I remember right, Spinoza was of, of the Jewish faith. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not as familiar with that, but I think that's right. That, that sounds, but it's, that's the, that excommunication, that scapegoating, uh, it, it's one of the uh, horrific shadows, I think, of the religious. The religion. It is. It's interesting, too, if you study a, a number of philosophers and hear their stories. You know, you get people like uh, Nietzsche, who told us God is dead, and his orientation to all this was different. And then you, you have, you know, Spinoza, and you have all these different philosophers. So you, you see that um, different cultures and different eras have different approaches. And uh, you look at Immanuel Kant, well, you know, his writings were very profound and they're still referenced by elite philosophers to this very day. In fact, I was just reading the book Science From Science to God by Peter, Rus Peter Russell this morning, and he has a fair bit of commentary on Immanuel Kant's teachings and how they relate to consciousness. But, you know, nobody wanted to burn Kant's house down. He remained a professor. People found his work quite fascinating, and if anything, it elevated him in his status. But if Baruch Spinoza or many others would have written the same thing in their culture, they might have been killed. Right. It's And that's that, you know, uh, going back to those four functions, part of that is that whole sociological dimension of religion, how we are related to the group, and whether our individual experience can be harmonized with the group or whether it can't be harmonized. And this is part of Jung's own dilemma. He was living at a particular time and he was having his kind of visionary experiences in what he called his confrontation with the unconscious, working with his own psychological images that become the red book. But, yes, I've studied right. That. But how for him the the problem is how do you make the bridge from this to a world steeped in uh, the scientific viewpoint? How do I present this material? And so it, his psychology grows out of the need to communicate to the world in a way that can be heard his deep experiences uh, but that's a hard uh, work and uh, uh, really kind of uh, translation work to make it, it is and you know one of one of the books in my library is is a, a collection of letters from all the preachers and pastors and religious higher-ups that wrote uh what do you call it? Rebuttals to Jung, yeah. and having having read, you know, many of them, 
the first thing that strikes me is they don't understand what he's saying. They're rebutting, but they're rebutting on their own interpretation, which is biased by their own belief system. So they're not actually interpreting what Jung's saying as he's meant to say it. And and I would see that over and over again. Yes, that's absolutely true. And he talks about how uh, the moment you start to talk about religious subjects, and maybe that's a warning for you and I, but the morning, the moment you start to talk about religious subjects, you're in danger of being torn apart by both sides, right? By the, the, the people who think it's all nothing at all. And for those who have a very rigid and literal understanding of it, a very fixed understanding to hold that a uh, psychological dimension that he holds it's very hard for people to 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 meet him there it's true i i i've been talking about these things and my podcast is all about open explorations of everything from sex to god to plant medicines to you name it so people listening to my podcast are ripe for it or they wouldn't keep listening and it keeps growing, so something's working right. But, you know, I, I basically, when I have people that get all wound up and start attacking me like that, I simply tell them, look, what I'm sharing is my own experience, and that's all I have authentic ownership of. So don't take it as though I'm force-feeding you anything. I'm making an offering so that anybody can have a different perspective. And I tell people all the time, any belief system worth living is worth challenging. And if all I'm doing is reinforcing that you are comfortable and at peace with your own belief system, then there's value in that. But if I'm bringing you to a place where you're defending yourself and you're attacking me, it means you're already insecure about your own belief system. And really, your effort to diminish me to protect yourself is a projection and points to the need for you to really sit with what it is that's winding you up so much. Because if you were truly at peace with your own philosophy, you wouldn't be reacting. You might just simply say to me, well, that's not my opinion, or that's not my experience, and that would be just fine. Right. Jung's take on that is that when you're holding so tightly to your image of God, you really actually don't have a, a real faith and trust in that, in God. No, it's an intellectual concept. Right. It's a belief and a, a, a something we cognitively assent to, but it's not a felt experience. Yes. And, you know, in our discussion here, what keeps popping into my mind is the Gnostics. I studied the Gnostics quite a bit. And really, from my studies of the Gnostics, there were a bunch of people that were interested in exploring the mystery of life and God and spirituality and they would just get together often at night and sit around a campfire and talk kind of like people at AA sharing their pains except it would be sharing their experiences and how they did it and somebody would say well I was meditating this way and I had this happen you guys want to try it and then they would try it and then they would share their experiences and someone say well how about this and so it was more like um it was more like what we would think of as a think tank today where a bunch of geniuses get together and share ways to solve a big problem or create something new and fantastic. And to me, that's what religion I think is, is 
yes, there's functions of having the structure and, and the function of fundamentalism, as Houston Smith says, is to protect the authentic tools and practices and rituals that led the founder of that religion to their own opening because they feel that those are the fundamental things that have to be maintained or the religion kind of loses its purchase power, its, its, its agency. But the Gnostics approach, I think if we took the fundamental aspects of it and said, okay, that's one side of the coin, but then we took the Gnostic approach, then we can constantly reevaluate based on our immediate experience whether or not we need to update our fundamentalism. Right, right. The the opportunity to to use the, what's there, to use the raw material or the 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 kind of the foundations that have been laid for experiments to experiment. One author calls it uh, an opportunity. The traditions are opportunities for experiments with truth, and that's what keeps the. Uh, the lifeblood in it. And Jung's take on this too is that it's the mystics who are doing some of those experiments who bring creativity into uh, the religious world so that it's not just fixed forms, but there's still something of the original energy that can infuse it. And it's not just getting sort of dried out and locked down uh, and thought about instead of deeply experienced. Yes. There's many things I'd like to say in response to that, but I think I have uh, questions uh, coming up in relation to some of my thoughts, so I'll just sit on it. You know, Bioptimizers makes an amazing product called P3OM, which is a prebiotic product, and it's amazing for uh, not only helping uh, repopulate the gut with uh, friendly bacteria, but as Wade will tell you, it's really, really an amazing uh, product in case you ever feel like you're getting any kind of food poisoning or illness coming on. And Wade's right here with me, and he's the co-founder of Bioptimizers, and he knows more about P3OM than anybody. But I can tell you this, I've had nothing but excellent results and nothing but positive feedback from all my clients and friends that I've turned it on, turned on to P3OM. So Wade, tell us a little bit about P3OM and, and why it works so well. Well, P3OM is, we call it the Navy SEAL of probiotics. Amen. Bas basically, its job is to kick out the bad guys in your body. Uh, food poisoning is one of those things from bad bacteria. What we've done is we've taken a, an aggressive strain of L-plantarum. We put it into toxic soup, ran a sine wave, to keep a few of them alive. And the few survivors, we grow in very specialized medium to make a cultured, patented enzyme that has extraordinary powers. Uh, number one, it survives the intestinal tract. Yes. And number two, it is absolutely hunts down uh, pathogens in, this, in the body, bacteria, viruses, these type of things. And this is really where the future of probiotics is. It is about developing and culturing and creating super strains of probiotic, very much like the Navy SEALs go through a training and these yes. individuals mm -hmm. have extraordinary powers to deal with chaos. And in today's world where we want to improve our immunity and our function and our gut health, P3M is head and shoulders above any probiotic out there. So my understanding is it can be used daily 
as a supplement, but it can also be used in larger quantities as a defense measure. We've tested this uh, literally with over a hundred of our friends who have been suffering from various times of food poisoning. And a handful of those guys, when you're in food poisoning and within 20 to 30 minutes, you complete recovery. That's awesome. And I've, I've uh, seen it happen myself. Angie has felt bad a number of times and uh, several of people in the, in the house or family have. And I say, take 10. If that doesn't feel good in an hour, take 20. And you've told me you can't overdose on them, which is amazing. Yeah, that's the beauty of Pethorum. You can't take too much. They'll fight off the bad guys and uh, they'll get your digestion rocking and rolling the way it should. So if you want to have a healthy gut and you want some defense, carry P3OM with you wherever you go, airplanes, cars, business meetings, hotels, conferences, and you've got your Navy SEALs in the bottle and they're ready for you anytime. Wade, how do we, we get a hold of your amazing P3OM product? Super easy. Just go to www.bioptimizers.com slash living4d and put in Paul10 for your 10% discount code. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S.com slash living4d and Paul10 for your discount code. You got it. There you go. Try it. You'll love it. I use them. I can't tell you enough how much I love this product. I think it's a genius product. And you've heard it right from the master himself. Get your P3OM. Let us know how you feel about it. Lots of love. I would love it to hear if you have any thoughts on what the human urge for worshiping God or what drove us to the sense of awareness or even the concept of God. In other words, what, what do you think is the origin of this urge for God? That's such a deep question. Uh, and well, I'm tempted on the one hand to say that is so far above my pay grade. That's okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I promoted you. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for that. Uh, but I, you know, my, my, my intuition around this is, uh, that in our makeup, is the fact that we are relational beings, that we are uh, born into uh, a world in which relation is key, right? We're, we begin in the body of another human being. And when we come into the world, we're uh, seeking that body, we're seeking connection with that other. And in some way, our experience of ourself only makes sense in relationship to some other, to a thou. And on, on some level, uh, you know, you can take that far enough and say, well, we don't really know where the boundary between the self and the other is. Where do I end and you begin? Because as you and I are having this conversation, my experience involves you. You are not separate from it. My reality in this moment includes you. And so Thank the, you. the, well, it, it, it's, it's, it's very true. Uh, unless I was just kind of, um, 
re reciting something I've learned by rote and not really listening to you, and I was holding you out. But but if we're if we're really in relationship, uh, we are uh, part of a whole that you can't really separate. And I think that when we have this deep experience of ourselves, or when we have an experience that is powerful, full of some of that wonder that we talked about before, uh, we naturally, almost instinct, instinctively experience ourselves as confronted by a something. Even if we don't know what that something is, and even if that something is uh, a kind of absence, a kind of emptiness or nothingness, it still feels full of presence. And I think that that leads into a sense of we're not alone, even in our, 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 our deep aloneness. Um, that there is, uh, there's a great title of a book by uh, the French philosopher who studies uh, Islam, Henri Corbin, and he talks. Of, his title is "Alone with the Alone." Right? Uh, we're confronted by a something. We call it God. We call it the universe. We call it the goddess. Um, we don't know what that is, but we're inclined to be in relationship with it. Jesus called it Daddy, Abba. <laughs> That's great. You know, um, I've, I've been interested in the answer to this question for a long time. So I searched all over the world for books that had dialogue on that and i found a very good book i don't remember the title of it off my head it's funny though i came across it this morning i just didn't remember the title i was looking for another book but it actually made a very interesting proposal which i'd love to share with you just because i think you might find it interesting and, and the audience hopefully will too but it was it was exploring exactly this question you know what triggered our interest or need for or search for god and the proposal being made by the author is that in the development of man, there must have come a time where when we killed somebody, particularly like in a tribal battle, for example, that we came to the realization that we did not have to do that. And suddenly we became aware that we were doing something and in doing so, it had taken life away from what it was, be it the person or the animal that we had just killed. And suddenly we're in a position to see the numinous, the mysterious. And then that triggered off a reaction within us where all of a sudden we realize there's something more than just us happening or just more than just the act of the kill. There's, something greater happening sure uh it would be uh that kind of uh profound moment of of uh well, yeah like the lightning bolt or this opening up uh the sky opens and all of a sudden 
you see, you know yourself as well. Like, oh, I'm an actor. I'm I'm an agent in in this world. I've done something. I've seen this with my kids actually. Early on, their first experience of breaking or losing something that can't be put back together, that can't be fixed, that uh, won't come back, is absolutely devastating. And it opens up this experience of the preciousness of something, the preciousness of the experience, the life. And why is that so special? Why is it, does that have such meaning? Uh, it's, it is a, a, a sudden kind of, uh, coming online in some way. You know, when I was 18, uh, was, I was 18 when my first son, Paul Jr. was born. He's 41 now. And I had my first complete union with the universe right when his head came out of the birth canal. It, it, something numinous happened to me that was so powerful. It blew me wide open. And I remember crying for a long time. It was so overwhelming and so powerful. I had never in my life felt intimately one with all that is. And it really changed me for the rest of my life. It was like, it was, I'd had other mystical experiences, but none of them were so profound that it made me have this paradoxical of experience of celebrating everything and questioning everything at the same time, because it had taken me so beyond any of the concepts of God or other experiences that I had, which I had some profound ones, but there was just something, there's just something completely and utterly wild when your psyche merges with the whole like that. Yeah. And what a profound mystery that is that you are a participant in, you know, that, that you are part of the, 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 the whole that creates that that mystery and it to have that effect there's probably uh, very few things as transformational as, as that moment it sounds like for you it was uh, extraordinarily so yes it, it it was and it I think it was also a profound gift because having had that experience so early it gave me a very good, sense of let's call it a truth meter for when people were talking about god this god that uh you know religion this religion that now i had my own deep visceral experience of union and no matter what anybody said my truth meter could measure their words based on that authentic experience and really all I could say is that it was the first time I experienced unconditional love and it, it blew me wide open. <laughs> and it also <laughs> made me want to go light a lot of religious books on fire to protect people. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, people don't know the truth. <laughs> they're, they're, they're getting railroaded by all these 
you know, ideas and control strategies, but, uh, you know, th- that we can get into in a little bit. But uh, the next question I had for you is, is uh, this, I divide religions into two groups. Uh, group A, I call authentic religion or the genuine pursuit of the transcendent, numinous, and mystical experiences, such as were practiced by the Gnostics and by the mystics of Christianity, Judaism, the Sufis of Islam, and other groups that value direct personal experience above and beyond any convention or dogma. And then what I call corporate religion, which is the corporatization of religion, the use of dogma, the creation of large group consciousness and belief systems that are a means of making huge amounts of money and meeting political agendas. Um, I feel it is what I am referring to as a corporate religion here that has triggered a lot of the distrust in God and religion in general and led to many people becoming agnostic, atheist, and resulted in people like Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, and others in that camp going against God and religion with as much fervor as the churches and religions that they're trying to uh, that are they're trying to rope people into those belief systems. I've also studied Osho very extensively, and he goes on and on about all the problems of religion for profit and what it's done in India. I'd love to hear your thoughts on how religion got hijacked by the corporate and political interests and what the ramifications are on the human psyche. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, when I think about this, I, I hear all of that and I, I agree with all of that. And I also am aware that this is not something that is only unique to religion. Uh, you know, we could look at what, uh, we do to the natural world, right? We could look at the way there is something in us that is happy to exploit the gifts that we have all around us, um, and, uh, is happy to, uh, uh, make use of those uh, to uh, exploit others. Um, part of all of this, too, is there we have these two uh, ways, in a sense, of relating to the the world, to to the universe. We can go at things as a kind of dominant self where we are the actor, we know something, we're doing something, or we can experience ourselves as subordinate. We're not the, the actor, we're, uh, we're acted upon, we're part of the experience. And that dominant self seems to be uh, what's something that's always been around, but it seems to be more and more the main paradigm, right? And certainly since the rise of scientific consciousness, when we've moved from questions of what's going on here, why are we here, to how can we use this? How can we make this work? And, and, uh, Morris Berman, in a book called The Enchantment, The Reenchantment of Everyday Life, talks about this development of the instrumentally rational 
consciousness that that when we uh, make use of something, we do it for a utilitarian purpose. And so when this creeps into religion, even when it comes in in um, you know uh, uh, objectively good ways, right? Uh, when the the focus is on uh, moral and ethical behavior, it's still a focus on what we're doing, what we're making, how we're doing it. And it, it doesn't have the kind of openness, honesty, humility, that whole realm of the openness to something bigger than us. And we lose not only the sense of the sacred, but uh, we're not allowing ourselves to be changed and transformed anymore. We're trying to make ourselves more functional, better people. Uh, and we can say, well, I'm better than that person. Uh, I, I'm more, uh, 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 I'm kind of more in tune with my tradition than that other person. Uh, and we, we create these hierarchies. And I think of uh, one of my favorite uh, theologians is Abraham Joshua Heschel. And one of the things that he says is, you know, the sense for the sacred is as vital to us as the light of the sun. And if we don't have that sense of the sacred, that others are sacred, that the world is sacred, that the mystery is sacred, uh, then we are uh, more prone to uh, to make use of things, to make use of others, um, to want others to be uh, in service to us in some way, rather than uh, experiencing ourselves in service to something larger than ourselves. Yes, I agree with that. I think I love the way you've positioned that. I'm sure all of you know that mushrooms have a wide range of amazing healing benefits, and they're talked about a lot in the news these days. There's a huge amount of research going on. And one of the companies that does a lot of research and produces excellent products, of course, is Symbiotica. And they have an amazing new organic longevity mushroom product. So Sherveen's here to explain to us exactly what we can expect from this amazing product. Sherveen, what have you guys got coming out for us? <laughs> this one's exciting because as you know, you know, me and my family, we've been hunting mushrooms in the forests of the Pacific Northwest and you know, Northeast Canada for a long time. And medicinal mushrooms, the, the, the background of it being a Taoist immortal practice coming from ancient China. This is, um, this is something new. And this is the first time it's ever been done before. Nobody has ever made a liposomal mushroom complex ever in the history of supplementation, at least in this epoch. And what we got in this one is we got king trumpet, turkey tail, and trotia maitake and the queen rishi mushrooms all blended together all grown here in san diego in an organic grow farm certified organic so nothing's coming from china and it's no offense to china but there's a massive amounts of industrial pollution there and regulations there are 
really, really low. So this is this is safe for everyone, all ages. We use organic cacao extracts, and this is almost like a dessert. It's so delicious. The benefits, we all kind of know mushrooms. It's an adaptogenic herb. It helps your body adapt to the environments. They contain B vitamins, triterpenes, metabolites, you know, vitamin D, prebiotics. They all support a healthy immune system, nervous system. They lower systemic inflammation, and it's delicious. It's like a chocolate fudge dessert, and you can use it in any way you want, any application, straight from the bottle. You can put it on top of foods. You can put it on top of fruits. I mean, this one's going viral right now in so many ways, and uh, I'm really excited for everyone to try it. Well, head on over to symbiotica.com, C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A, and get your happy California-raised sunshine mushrooms with some high-end chocolate. And what a great way to start your day and know you're loving your body. On checkout, use your code, capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K, 15. That's check 15 for your 15% discount. And while you're there, check out all the amazing products at Symbiotica. You can't go wrong. It seems to me to what I'm referring to as corporate religion, it really takes on more the um, air of a university or a high school classroom and the people that are running it have the belief that what they're teaching is right and it has to be learned and it has to be followed or there's negative ramifications and so it's almost like if you can imagine you owned a school like i own an institute well if you want to grow it you have to market it you you have to uh, get more people in the door you have to have functions to draw people in and so really what i see happening is what was meant to be more of an exploration of the mysterious and a celebration of morals and connection and possibilities and strategies for navigating challenging times by using the wisdom of the tradition becomes more of a pedagogical, pedagogical, <laughs> pedagogical urge, uh, educational urge. And then the next thing you know, we, we really sort of have the sort of phenomenon that we get with the dogma of a university or the dogma of a scientific belief system. And, and then it starts to lose its, um, it's people don't actually reach beyond the words anymore. It, it's sort of like Jung's description of what happens when a symbol turns into a sign at that point. Right. That's absolutely true. You know, it, it's this dilemma, uh, the the structure, the tradition wants to preserve itself, wants to continue to go on being, um, but it closes down the uh, original energy, and it and and the focus becomes its own self preservation as opposed to uh, an opening up of an experience. And you know, Jung himself was really worried about this in terms of Jungian psychology. He was really uh, ambivalent about the idea of uh, a Jung institute, an institute 
for learning about Jung's psychology because he didn't want it to become a dogma. He didn't want it to become a, a, a group of sort of slavish followers who just did what he did. He wanted people to go through their own experience. And he has this famous saying where he says, thank God I'm Jung and not a Jungian. <laughs> yes, I've read it before. It's great. But that's inconvenient for me, who's a Jungian. <laughs> and so it's really important to recognize that if we are not bringing some original work in, bringing some original view, and, and we're not allowing for the, uh, at, even temporarily, the dissolving of the structures so that something authentic can come forward. So to be a Jungian for me, for instance, I have to let go of the idea of being a Jungian. And therefore, I can stay close to what's a true experience. And Jung can inform my work, but I don't have to be a particular way in order to feel I'm true to that tradition. That's not necessarily how everybody feels about it, but it's a position I try to take within it. I think it's really healthy. And, you know, the the vision that came to me as you were speaking is that not only every Jungian analyst, but anybody that's spent any real time studying Jung, I've probably studied as much Jung as most analysts have, but I would say anybody from the analyst to people like me that have found Jung in our heart are carrying a piece of his soul. And I would strongly suspect that if he was witnessing each of us, he would be most excited when we in some way evolved the Jungian viewpoint by bringing in new avenues of application or new ways of perceiving that somehow built upon his legacy right we have to in i think that's that i mean i can imagine that that would be true right and and i think the what jung says about the church is kind of a, a position that we might take to his own work he says I, I must know what the church teaches and then i must find my own way I feel that about Jung. I must know what he teaches. I must know the fundamentals. I must know the core and then find my own way and be a, a, an individual within that. Yes. And, and the way I've uh, protected my institute from that very problem is I tell my students, I am not here to teach you what to think. I've developed a system for solving problems or a meta structure for how to think with regard to dealing with the issues of people's lives in other words i've given you assessment skills i've given you motivational interview skills i've given you techniques that you can use so that you have a toolbox that has the tools that are necessary for helping people heal grow and achieve their dreams goals and objectives in life but don't believe a word I say. Go out and test it for yourself. If it doesn't work, come back. Show me what you're doing. And every single time someone came back, they were doing it wrong. And when they did it right, it worked. 
And I tell my students, I wouldn't be teaching you this if I hadn't tested it thoroughly because I wouldn't want to make an idiot out of myself by teaching thousands of people to do something that doesn't work. But at the same time, there's now over 40 books written by my students, each taking the philosophy and the concepts into their own arena, whether it be equestrian, uh, whether it be, uh, you know, books on how to prepare for downhill skiing or how to heal from gut disorders, etc. So, you know, I, I look at a lot of the union authors like yourself and many others, Miriam Woodman and, uh, you know, Murray Stein and, uh, you know, so many of them, I must have 150 of them. And I read a lot of them and I go, thank God for these guys because Carl Jung is so deep and you have to have grappled with his lexicon, just like Steiner. I've been studying Steiner for as long as I've been studying Jung. You can read 30 pages in a Steiner book before he actually explains what the <laughs> meaning of the word he was using was 30 pages ago. Most people don't have the discipline to deal with that kind of a cliffhanger in their head, so they just give up. But many of the Jungian authors, I think, present Jung's concepts much more clearly and practically than he himself did. I think that's right. That's absolutely right. I think one of the uh, things that I've seen maybe more recently, I, I agree with, uh, you know, you're talking about Murray Stein and, and Marion Woodman, they're fantastic uh, 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 advocates and, and they make the work very accessible. Often there's a lot of uh, discussion or there's a lot of writing in, in my world, in the Jungian world, where it often seems we're talking to each other. Jungians are talking to Jungians. And my wish is to be able to talk beyond that world and to talk to, to people at large and to hopefully be able to break it down and make it accessible and available for people. Yeah, I agree with you 100% because many of the books are using terms and concepts that are classically union, but they're not uh, aware that the public has not got that training. So, you know, uh, unless they're going to explain what the unconscious or the collective unconscious is or the shadow is or and uh, another problem is that many of these union terms like the shadow are now very open in the public and they're being used in a myriad of different ways. So we're starting to run into this issue of, well, what the hell does this guy mean when he says that? And so I, I really applaud that, that quest to make union concepts and teachings applicable for the public, not just other unions, because otherwise it's going to stifle the effectiveness of the medicine. Absolutely. And, and there will be no room for the new uh, and that new influx that we were just talking about, someone with a creative uh, uh, sensibility that can bring that new energy to it. Yes. I think that's one of the reasons Jordan Peterson got so famous is because he was able to take Jung to the public in ways that they could understand, and it struck them very deeply and quickly led to him being a worldwide sensation. I think that's right. He, he did a great job of... Uh, explaining and uh, uh, making the complex uh, understandable. Yeah. 
Continuing on from the question above that we were just going over, I would love it if you could outline the essential function religions offer when shared in ways that are healthy. In other words, if, if, if I'd love to hear what you have to say, you know, we've talked about the four functions of religion, but you, you really only gave the headings. If we're in a religion that's really doing what religion is designed to do based on the needs that we have for religion, what is it that we're experiencing? And the reason I think this is a very important question is because your answer to this question can become a means by which someone can evaluate whether or not their religion is delivering what a religion should or could deliver for them. Sure. What, what are you, what should somebody look for, right? What, what is it meant to do? What's its role? Yeah. You know, it's, I, I do a, uh, a chapter on this in in the book and you know there's a lot of things that probably don't get addressed but the, when i was working through this and working with jung's uh thoughts on this and some of the other things that i was researching a number of things that sort of stood out one is jung talks about this idea that um you know we've lost a living connection to our religions. And he says, you know, as long as things are going all right, you won't notice the loss. It's fine. If you can live your life, live your life. But the moment that something happens, the moment that suffering enters in, we begin to need something. We begin to need some way of metabolizing that. So many people will start to look for uh a community, a church, uh, 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 you know, a temple, um, just a group when they're in that place of suffering, when they're, when they're in that place when the world has been turned upside down. And what the religions offer is the possibility of this larger perspective that can contain that kind of experience i remember uh how uh when 9-11 happened um the move of people that day to go to churches and to go to synagogues and to go to temples and uh was so powerful even people who did not regularly go they needed something that spoke a language that could encompass something that was beyond our ability to comprehend so it's it's one place that uh that kind of language that kind of symbolism can contain what we can't rationally hold so there's there's that piece the other thing that Jung talks about is uh, without a larger vision of what life is about, everything that we do becomes banal, he says. Everything is banal and everything is what he calls nothing but. It, we're just uh, uh, 
biological beings uh, passing on our DNA to the next generation. That's all there is. There's nothing more. And that's not really a life that people can live. We are beings who need meaning. And we're beings who need uh, a sense of our relationship to the, the universe, uh, to the cosmos. And without that, we suffer, we become neurotic, we become sick. Um, and so it, it gives us this wider vision that we can look at. The other thing that it does is, you know, things can go very well for us. You know, we might not notice the loss of the religious dimension at all, and we're enjoying life and everything can go right. And yet it doesn't satisfy at a certain point, pleasure, the pursuit of pleasure runs out of juice. It just doesn't do it. It's not enough. And we feel there must be something more. And that moment becomes uh, the moment of searching for something else. In religion, where some people experience religion as oppressive and saying, don't do this, don't do that, that can also be a way of challenging and kind of tempering ourselves in uh, doing what I call a subversion of values so that we're actually uh, trying out our values and finding out what's really important. And when re religion is done well, it can provide that experience. It can it can be a testing ground uh, for us to compare the the values that we're living out of with uh, maybe more lasting and more extensive values. I, I really believe uh, that what you were sharing about the inability to feel fulfilled in the in the sort of the material world and it's you look for example at how many famous actors movie stars musicians have made so much money and had so much success that they had everything they ever wanted all the sex all the drugs cars homes and many of them commit suicide because they just feel empty inside it's as though that none of it satiates them and so i think that um that we really need religion and god or spirituality to hold the the vision or the path to something that ultimately is fulfilling uh, the way i describe this to my students is i say first we have to realize that only god can create and give a soul and the nature of god is unconditional love and the journey of the soul paradoxically is actually to realize what it really is and therefore all the things we try to fill ourselves with as a soul in human form are all surrogates for something much more all-embracing and all-encompassing and that the soul ultimately is not satiated until it experiences what it really is which is unconditional love or god itself so if we're not in uh, um, if we're not in a mode of relating to life and ourselves or 
in a fulfilling religion that gives us this sense of connection to the mysterious and the and the sense of God or something uh, far bigger than us and far more safe and far more whole and far more wise, something that we really feel we really feel that um I think when someone has a genuine love of God, the thought of death isn't such a scary thing because it means a greater chance of actually being with God. It's like Rumi says, I want burning. I want burning. I would be happy with even criticisms from you speaking to God, of course. You know, he's saying, burn everything that's not you away. If I can just hang out with you and you criticize me, I'll be more happy than I am right now. And so I think that religion is each step that we go in our spiritual evolution and our growth of consciousness, what was once very distant from us starts to become more and more palpable, more and more tangible. I mean, I'm I'm at the point in my life now, I look at my kids and I have a palpable sense of god i've uh i've got a, a four and a half year old and a one and a half year old and i have two wives so i live sort of true to my heart not true to convention but true to my heart and when i was 54 and my second wife got pregnant it was a real shock for me because i was like oh my god do i gotta go through all this again you know my little boy just blew my heart wide open and then my little girl came and I'd never had a girl before and she just got me wrapped around her finger and I love it you know and so there's just an example and having spent so much of my life studying nature being raised on Vancouver Island British Columbia on a 142 acre farm with old growth forest and being able to disappear into the woods and spend time out there I, I've reached a point where I can feel God in everything. And that's my dream for other people, because when you have that sense, I always have what I call my spiritual compass inside of me. So no matter how crazy life gets or the world gets, I just orient myself toward my soul compass and know that every time I've let that be my guide, let that be my seeing eye dog, I've always done absolutely amazingly well. But whenever I let my ego hold the compass, then the pain just seems to magnify itself. <laughs> right. When you've got the the that compass right, you you are at home in the world. You're at home in life. That's it. That's the goal. You know, uh, Jason, in my studies of the structure stages of consciousness, it's clear that as we grow in consciousness, we become more open to other viewpoints. For example, in Ken Wilber's traditional stage, which is inclusive of the magic uh, the magical stage and the mythical stage of consciousness, we find ardent adherence to dogma and literal translation of text or scriptures. When we get to the modern stage of consciousness, people begin to flower and naturally find interest in other viewpoints and belief systems. In this stage, we find people going to churches like and faiths like Baha'i or Self-Realization Fellowship, as I mentioned earlier, and other such faiths that have an all a more all-encompassing and less dogmatic approach in the postmodern stage people begin weighing them all out and can find themselves in that postmodern paradox of nihilism because all the seeming positives are counterbalanced by the negatives but those in this stage that have transcended 
have had transcended experiences, be they naturally or through shamanic experiences with or without the use of plant medicine, seem to avoid the trap and may grow into the integral stage of consciousness. Those in the integral stage, according to Ken Wilber's research, only make up 2% of the world population. And um, they seem to understand that there's some truth in everything. And it's really just a matter of putting it into perspective. The integral person can see religions much the way we see a small school that starts in kindergarten and ends at high school and is keeping of, uh, capable of helping others by meeting them at their own level and helping them gently awaken. With this shared and the tumultuous social-political environment rapidly turning into a corporatocracy, trending toward fascism today, it seems our loss of authentic religion in connection to the great mystery of life and the four functions of religion uh, sh shared by Joseph Campbell has resulted in a dangerous, a dangerous inflation, uh, or excuse me, affiliation with scientific materialism and consumerism, which I feel is a dangerous trap indeed. I'd love it if you could share your thoughts and feelings in this regard. Yeah. When I hear you kind of go through and talk about the different stages of consciousness and, um, you know, I find myself uh, experiencing this need for humility, right? Humility around these questions. There's, there's, there is this wide range of levels that people are experiencing. And then there's the loss of the structures and, and our connection to the functions of a, a a healthy functioning religion and then the the kind of uh what fills that void and that gap is this uh corporate experience or the consumer experience and jung is always pointing out the importance of individuals doing their work individuals doing their own growth work, getting in touch with their, their own depths, their psyche, uh, and that the, the, the social world, the larger world that we live in, you know, he points out that it's made up of individuals. And so the quality of individuals in that group matters. Um, but for him, it's bottom up. It's from the individual up and it's not top down. And if we're not doing our work and if we don't have a position, we are primed for that uh, kind of, uh, we're primed for marketing. We're primed for marketing from anywhere, from uh, uh corporations and politicians or across the spectrum. Um, and so the, the, the importance of individual uh, actors working on themselves is crucial. On one hand, right, we know that as you and I have been talking about it, there's nothing more important than some connection to wisdom. But from another perspective, from a kind of utilitarian perspective or an economic perspective, 
there's nothing more useless than wisdom. It's not useful. It doesn't uh, uh, add to uh, the economy necessarily. Uh, and, and when we approach ourselves, our own psyches in this way, if we go into ourselves or uh, into our religious traditions in order to wrench something out of it and put it to use uh, for our own interests in some way, it's not unlike uh, exploiting the resources of the earth, of clear-cutting a forest in order to put them to our own economic uses. So how we treat uh the other inside of us, how the individual treats the other inside of themselves determines how we treat the other outside of us. And Jung has this great quote where he talks about will. He says uh, something like the will, what's called will in the individual is called imperialism in nations, right? Because all will, he says, is this attempt to have power over fate. And, uh, you know, to treat ourselves, to treat others, to treat the world as sacred may not produce something valuable from an economic perspective. You know, what good is a tree if you aren't consuming it in some way? Uh, it's a tree and you're in relationship to it. And if you're meditating or you're praying or you're daydreaming or doing dream work or something like that you're not buying stuff no. you're not available to be uh sold or marketed to because you are connected to something else um but you know where it's really only a task that the individual can do you have to be awakened to it you can be guided and taught but Ultimately, it's the individual who has to be awakened. I teach my students a concept I developed called the pain teacher. And I tell people, when pain arrives in our lives, it's a very good time to look for the opening. It's an opportunity. You know, um, Arnold, there's an author named Arnold Patton that produced a series of universal principles. And in one of them, he says, if you don't like what's happening in your life, look carefully at what you're choosing unconsciously. And I think when we're in personal pain, family pain, or collective pain like so many are right now, it's really an opportunity to say, okay, let's look inside the hole that's being created by the wound and see where our belief system or our mythology is not expanding or growing with the reality of the moment or the reality of our day or the reality of the situation of my life. For example, uh, you might be thinking in your head, I don't love this person anymore. I don't want to be married to them. But you may not realize that the wound is really an invitation to have a deeper sense of connection and find out what the wants, feelings, and needs of your partner are and share what yours are instead of just rejecting them and thinking that somebody else is going to be the medicine. We, we seem to be so trapped in this scientific materialistic medical paradigm that's programmed people that whenever you have a pain, you just take the right drug and it goes away, but it never really looks at the etiology of things. 
Well, just that that idea of we we don't go with the pain and and let it teach us. We go, oh, this isn't fun anymore. Let's go somewhere else. We jump the whole problem and start it all over again. Exactly. It's kind of like getting to the 15th mile of a marathon and deciding you're too tired to make it. So you turn around to walk back, but you don't realize it's a lot closer to get to the finish line. (laughs) So now your feet are really going to be sore. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Exactly. That's hilarious. Yeah. There's a couple of thoughts that came to me while you were sharing there, which I loved what you shared. It was beautiful. Um, One of the concepts I read, I don't remember which Jungian author it was. It might have been James Hollis. It could have been any number of them. I have so many of them. Might have even been you. Um, I think it was somebody I was studying a while back, but they, they gave the concept of the inner ego and the outer ego and how important it is for us in our own growth and development work to bring those two into harmony and I, I really feel that that's a concept that hasn't made it into most religions or spiritual development circles. And I think from my own experience of working with my own soul and and really spending time in meditation and asking questions of my own soul and uh, sometimes having to wait months, weeks, or years for the answer to come but when the answer does come, it's always lucid and profound, and it it has a, a an effect of really bringing me into a sense of greater understanding, peace, and harmony, not only within myself, but within the context of life and the world. And I really feel that, you know, and also in my Jungian studies, I learned how the the father has the most influence on your outer expression or your outer persona and the mother has the greatest influence on your inner persona or the inner ego and i began using the union exercise i did it myself first where the author suggested that you paint or draw a, a mask that represents how you felt about your relationship with your father as a child and then do one about how you felt with your relationship as a mother, and then you redo it at this time in your life and your mask reflects who you are now because of your father and who you are now because of your mother. And I found that a profound exercise and every of my clients that I've put through the exercise has really benefited from it because I think that structure, that way of looking into ourselves and at ourselves allows us to become aware of the archetypal influences of mother and father, the experiential impact of mother and father, but gives us an objective viewpoint so we can really begin to do what we talked about with religion earlier and sift through it and say, okay, what of mom is really working for me? And what is it that I need to let go of? Because it's probably a behavior that I'm unconsciously inflicting upon others not realizing it yet knowing when my mother does that to me it drives me batty so we it's a great form of shadow work but i think it's also an amazing opportunity to begin to bring the outer and inner egos into harmony because as long as those two are separate we really sort of have a uh, almost a multiple personality disorder uh, absolutely we we uh we don't live 
the 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 inner kind of uh reality that we experience in our everyday worlds they're separated from each other so we're not we're we're alienated from ourselves if they're not in harmony and and that kind of working against oneself or or feeling cut off from uh oneself is part of uh a kind of loneliness that we carry we we might be busy and with a lot of people but if we're not in connection with something real uh we we feel that dissatisfaction we feel that disconnection things out of sorts out of alignment out of harmony it's crucial i think we also find ourselves doing and saying things that we later go why did i say that or why did i do that it's as though there's a dragon inside of us that somehow can take us over and until we realize that the split between the what we're calling the inner and the outer ego is there and that there's this tension all the time in us and that we're reacting and projecting that onto other people we don't really realize how the the potentially negative aspects of our mother and father image are playing out in us and it takes a, a level of awareness to to really bring those two parts of ourselves into harmony so that we're more likely to be standing in our own shoes, so to speak. The aboriginals have a saying that says, when a man's mind and body do not stand in the same place, he is crooked. And I could take that same metaphor and say, when the inner ego and the outer ego are not in unity, we are crooked. Yet we keep thinking everybody else is crooked. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely, and I think you know we could even uh, see that through the religious lens and talk about the uh, the inner experience, the individual experience, and trying to bring that into harmony with, say, a, a, a tradition or a, a, a symbolic universe of some kind, and. Uh, if you're trying to force yourself into a religious tradition, but it's not in harmony with who you are and what's what's actually going on in you, you are crooked. Yes. Well, the other thing that came to me uh, while you were speaking, you know, and we're talking about the the corporate aspect of religion and all the things that you you shared and that we shared. One of the things that I see is very dangerous, and I'd love your comments on. Um, and I'll elaborate more here as I express myself, but scientism is really a, an issue today, and science has become a religion in and of itself. And when I, you know, I've been a, a professional therapist and, and coach of athletes and life coach for a very long time, 37 years now. So I've had a lot of time. I've owned physical therapy clinics. I've lectured all over the world in medical schools, chiropractic schools, osteopathic schools, massage therapy schools, strength training, personal training, dance and movement education. So I've really been in the belly of the, so you say the healthcare and allied healthcare dragon. And what I, what I see is that that people actually worship whatever they believe to be a scientific fact or something published by anybody with a white jacket or a white collar as absolute fact. And so 
when you look at the environment we're in today, and, and I'll give you an example, people are scared to death about COVID and many people actually think they have it, but they don't actually do the research to find out that, oh, by the way, the PCR test is completely and utterly unreliable for diagnosing a specific virus. And I've seen interviews with the man that created the test saying flat out it should never be used that way. But people believe just because it's being promoted as science or something that the medical system is saying or Fauci is saying that it must be fact without looking into it. And when you look at what science has created, certainly it's given us gadgets and things that have made our life easier, but it's also been the source of countless drugs that have wiped out untold numbers of people, uh, something like, I don't know, two and a half or more million people die a year of drug side effects. And many of these things are just the side effects of not eating good food or, or not having a healthy lifestyle, yet nobody's telling them this. And what concerns me is that people aren't using their common sense they you know, they'll stay up late at night for weeks on end and end up with headaches and then take a bunch of drugs and never pay attention to the fact that they're dehydrated, eating garbage, staying up late at night and not moving their bodies. So I really, I'm really curious as to what your thoughts are with regard to scientism becoming a religion. And when I read your book and have been reading your book, there was a quote by Jung on what his concerns about science were or his expression of science. And it was a riveting quote. And it was so frustrating because I was being interviewed on a podcast last night and this guy was a bit science happy. And I warned him, you got to be careful. In fact, I said, give me a minute. I'm going to go get my book religious, yeah. but not be religious by Jason Smith, because he's got an amazing quote from you. And then I couldn't find the damn thing. I was so <laughs> pissed off. I'm like, damn it. I just <laughs> saw that in there this morning and I was in too much of a rush. You know how it is. So if you remember what Jung said that you wrote, there was a quote in there that was riveting. And I want to hear what you think about this issue of science becoming a religion and what are the pitfalls of that? Well, yeah, it's impossible to deny the uh, unbelievable impact that uh, the scientific revolution has brought about, and uh, the the experience of um, knowledge and the increase in knowledge and uh you know i think when i hear you talk about scientism uh that that's different than what science is meant to do as far as i understand which science is always evolving science is about uh you know we were talking before about with religion where you have to go beyond god well, that's kind of science's MO. It's supposed to go beyond what's known and, and, and always be uh, challenging its own knowledge. Um, so part of it, I, I feel, is, you know, it, it may be a number of things. 
Um, right now, we hear a lot about uh, uh, this kind of uh, um, battle between, uh, well, we've heard it for a long time, the battle between science and religion. Um, we hear a lot of uh, discussion about uh, science denial and uh, believing in science. Um, and so there seems to be this question about what can we rely on, what's truthful, what's real. Um, I would say that, you know, the issue of the corporate is, uh, and, and the issue of what human beings do with these tools that we have. Human beings take tools of enormous value like religion and science, uh, art. Uh, uh, you can probably come up with philosophy. And, and we have a way of uh, twisting them for our own ends and of uh, having a kind of power motive come in. Um, and so I think when that happens, uh, something that can be of enormous value can be turned uh, uh, or or misused in some way. I'm not sure what the quote is that you're you're referring to in the book, but I do know that one of the things that that Jung uh, emphasizes about that is the value of science is that it can um, look at these sort of general questions and give us a perspective on them. And, but it proceeds from a statistical point of view. And the statistical, as valuable as that is for giving a big picture, doesn't address the individual. The individual is never the same as the statistic. The individual experience is always unique, always unrepeatable, and doesn't necessarily fit exactly that general point of view. So while it gives us a map, the, the actual lived experiences of people is so varied and so... Uh, uh, there's such a large spectrum that if we're not attuned to that, uh, then we end up kind of on a kind of pro procrustean bed where uh, if you're too short, you get stretched out. And if you're too long, you get the, you know, your uh, limbs chopped off to fit the bed. If we're trying to fit something too tightly, force it, uh, that does damage to the individual. Yes. Your your comments on statistics remind me uh, of something Marie-Louise von Franz said in one of her books that I read. She's speaking about the danger of statistics, and the analogy she gives is you can have a one-ton pile of rocks with an average weight of two kilograms and weigh every single rock and find that not one of them weighs two kilograms, which I think makes a very important point. Because really what, what that's lending itself to is your comments on individuality. If we're just in the pile of rocks, then we can 
actually begin to believe that we are only a two kilogram being, but the reality of it is we might be, you know, eight tenths of a ton and therefore overlooking our own potential, our own grandeur, if you will. I, I actually had a friend text me a definition of scientism recently, which I'd like to read to you because it's, I think it might clarify exactly what I'm talking about. Scientism, an excessive, an excessive defense to claims made by scientists or an uncritical eagerness to accept any result described as scientific also includes the concept of a scientific ego. Only science has the right to describe the world around us. The fanatical egocentricity of scientism takes on many aspects of religious fundamentalism. And I see that right smack dab in the middle of what's going on right now. And that's what concerns me. Yeah. The, the, anything that is uh, expressed through a fundamentalist kind of uh, expression uh, becomes dangerous. And anything that excludes uh, uh, other forms of knowing, science is a, a, an amazingly effective way of knowing. Um, and there are other ways of knowing. Art is a way of knowing. Religion is a way of knowing. Um, but they're knowing through different channels. Um, and so anything that is too exclusive uh, cuts off its own uh, relationship with the rest of life. Yes. I, I personally, I, I'm an artist and I'm an art therapist and I teach art not only to my patients but to my students because of its value for inner exploration and creativity. And I believe singing, dancing, art, making music, making love, being in nature, religious studies, shamanism, the you know, effective use of plant medicines, uh, giving birth, raising children are just a few of the many doorways to the mystical or the numinous or the experience of the transcendent. And I get concerned when isms like scientism start controlling society and putting people into algorithms and turning us into objects. And that, that really is, is something that I'm deeply concerned about and using as much of my voice and my reach as possible to help people put into perspective so they don't get sucked down the vacuum of this whole thing and lose themselves in the name of objective science. Because the reality of it is science is on no more of an objective footing than religion. And I could give a long dissertation on why that's true. But I think Rupert Sheldrake in his book, Science Set Free, and he's got uh, it also is another one called The Science Delusion. Uh, and he is a scientist himself. I don't know if you know who Rupert Sheldrake is, but he's a genius. But but he really shows us the the underbelly of science. And though he has high regard for it, he says, these are the things that you need to be clear about so that you can be discerning in what you believe in in the name of science. And I think that's 
seriously missing in the world today? The, these ways of looking at the world, um, their perspectives and their mindsets, uh, but they also can become metaphors, right? And, and if things are only through if the that particular lens or one particular lens if the if the it's only the individual as an object the the person as an object or the person as a a kind of machine takes over the soul is lost um i i am no doubt there are uh scientists with great souls uh just as there are certainly uh religious folk who uh, uh, are not uh, connected to the soul um, but uh, it, it's it, it's so anything that becomes too one-sided too cut off from a, a full experience of what a human being is what life is um, is it, it, not uh, can't uh, nourish us the way we need to be. Yes, I think, <laughs> you know, when you're talking about the fact that there's people that are religious, but maybe even famous for their religious position that aren't connected to the soul or to the transcendent, I would have to say that it's quite apparent to me after studying world religion for many, many years that Satan attends every temple and every church and every synagogue and is a member of all of them. So uh, that that concept is alive and well. Of course, I'm Shadows also using always. a metaphor. <laughs> right, exactly. Right. The danger and the shadow is always nearby. There's always a shadow. Uh, and we always need to know where, the, where we're blind. Yes, and I often quote Jung in his statement, when Christianity created Jesus Christ, he cast a light so bright they had to create Satan to counterbalance him, which I think really puts it into perspective. And he also said, no tree can grow to heaven until its roots reach to hell. So I really believe that the concept of Satan or evil has a necessary function for consciousness and for our own growth. I think without that there, we'd all just be, you know, like, people partying forever and have an endless supply of money and nobody would grow. Right. But the, the things like well, we were talking before about suffering, those, those, those dark aspects of living uh, confront us with uh, our, the fullness of our experience and the, and the difficulty of it. And, um, knowing our own potential for darkness our own potential for evil knowing what's what we're capable of uh what any human being is capable of is essential so that we don't enact it on other human beings yeah the the way i put that in metaphor is the devil you know is always better than the devil you don't know yes the devil you don't know will take over and run roughshod over you. And you'll blame it on the other guy. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Jason, I'm very much enjoying this conversation with you. I really appreciate the depth of your wisdom, your honesty, and how humble you are with 
approaching some of these things. Thank and uh, I probably could use a little more of your humility. And I'm an ex-paratrooper, <laughs> so I tend to go in full bore, you know. <laughs> well, I could use some of that myself. So. <laughs> um, I trade a little bit. Yeah, I'll give you some of my fire. I'll give you some of my yang, and you can give me some of your yin, and we'll balance out. Sounds good. You know, the title of your book is Religious But Not Religious, and I certainly love the title, but my fear is that most people that need the message you offer are not deep enough to get the meaning contained within the title. Could you please share what it means to be religious but not religious and the importance of that approach today in consideration of the potentially serious socio-political, medical, industrial, and corporate influences that we're being (laughs) exposed to? Right. Well, my thought about being religious but not religious and and why I uh, titled the book that way and, and, and kind of brought that perspective is really, you know, you're looking at, I'm looking at this idea of the difference between religion as a thing and religion as an activity. Uh, religion uh the the activity of religion the the practice of religion the attitude of religion versus a religion jung's idea is that there's a difference between religion which in his perspective is a uh, a word that's closer to our understanding of spirituality and he contrasts that with creed the creed is the thing, the confession, the thing you believe, the community. And religion as an attitude comes from this root uh, religio or religio. Yes. Mm-hmm. To link back. To link back. He also points out that the the etymology of that word religio is not just to link back, but it's to go over again, ah. to reflect again. And so there's the quality of what links us to uh, the depths, to the archetypal depths, to the divine. But then there's the going over again, which is the attitude, the thing that we do, the, the, the effort that we put in uh, and the intention that we have. Uh, there's a great quote from Goethe, which is that, you know, all uh, all the important thoughts have already been thought. Uh, all that needs to happen is for us to think them again. And what that means for me is not just uh, become acquainted with them, but think them, to get them into our experience to transform them through our own experience uh, and so that attention Jung's definition of religion is uh, a careful consideration of the irrational facts of experience or of the numinous a careful consideration or a careful observation it's to pay attention to that dimension of experience, um, not through a, a realm of belief, through a realm of fixed ideas, but 
to be in relationship with that dimension. Um, and in a way, you know, this could apply to any field of endeavor. It doesn't even have to be religion. Uh, you know, whatever it is, uh, it could be uh, art or politics, philosophy, uh, science, as we were talking about. You can be religious in one way, hold it as a fixed belief system, or religious in another way, where you are open to the wisdom and responsive and in a communication with it and in a relationship with it. And so it's helpful to have the structures. It's helpful to have the religious structures, the traditions, the symbols. One of the reasons I say religious, but not religious and not uh, spiritual, but not religious, which is the more common phrase is that it's helpful to have a connection to the tradition and yet not be uh, sort of slavishly uh, caught up in it, to have uh, a truly religious uh, relationship with that. Uh, and you used the word maturity before uh, when we were talking, and, I, and this is... Uh, it requires that kind of maturity. It requires the ability to uh, not demand that the institution do this or uh, be a perfect kind of mother or father, but to have some independence from it, even as we are in relationship with it. I think that's really healthy and important. You know, um, most of the people in the world today are at the traditional level of conscious development, according to Wilbur's research, about 70%, which is a mix of the magic and mythic stages of development. But we have a big problem because, A, most of these people and people in general have been conditioned by scientific materialism to believe that a myth is a lie, and B, a large percentage of people at this level of conscious development are stuck in literal interpretations of myths or the myths of their religions. And Joseph Campbell says, when the Bible is read as a dictation as opposed to a connotation, we are in trouble. <laughs> this seems to me uh, in large part to stem from the fact that very few people I've come across in my entire life have any real understanding of what a myth is or how a myth functions within the psyche of man. Jason, I would love it if you could share your thoughts in regard to what I've shared here and help us understand what a myth is and how it really functions in the psyche and why myths are so important to us at even now. Yeah. I love that line from Campbell, the Bible as dictation instead of connotation as fixed truth instead of um, uh, the, the metaphorical, uh, expression of something, the finger pointing at the moon. You know, the psychologically approaching this, our perception of reality is not the same as the nature of reality. We don't know how much what we perceive, how much that lines up with things as they are. You know, there are 
uh, sound waves. And when they hit our ear, they're turned into sound. So we perceive sound, but that's not necessarily how it is in the uh, uh, in the world apart from our ear. In the right? wave. <laughs> in the in the wave, right? And and so this Jung's point is that everything is filtered through the psyche. Everything gets translated from an experience into an image through which we can make sense of the experience. So that image uh, gives us some orientation, even if it doesn't disclose 100% of what is there. So there's always this kind of extra. There's always more to an experience than we know. And in fact, we're filtering so much. There's so much stuff. coming at us there's so much stimulation that we have to sort out what to pay attention to and what to not pay attention to and the, and the psyche does this kind of automatically and one way that i think about myth is that it is the way that the human imagination responds to life right it tells us what things are like. And it says about a a particular experience, it says, it's like this, right? It's as if such and such happened. It's not telling us that this is what it is. It tells us what it's like. Um, And in a sense, it's the closest that we can get. And there's another definition, and I I think this is Joseph Campbell's definition, he says that myth is that which never was, but always is. It's not something that points to an objective happening some point in time in the past, but is a reality that is ongoing. We're always in the myth, right? It doesn't refer to something that takes place in the field of time. And you talked about chaos earlier, right? And and the creation stories. So, you know, when we read in the Bible that the spirit of God hovered over the waters and that's what's happening at the beginning of creation. It's not a story about what happened once upon a time. It tells us something about what creation is always like what's always going on, what's happening right now, that things start in a kind of formlessness, in a kind of chaos. And as we sort of give attention to that and hover over it and brood upon that, some force, some inspiration, something that feels like an other comes in and stirs up something new, creates something new. So the myth is relevant in that it tells us about what happens to us, not what happened to some people way back in the distant ancient past, but what happens to us right now. That formlessness, that 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 sort of chaotic water 
is right here, right now. And we are always acting out of some myth or other. Uh, we're always in some kind of story. Sometimes that story is a narrow one. It's a small one, right? Um, uh, that's the story that many people live. Uh, you get up in the morning, you go to work, you come home, you watch some television, you go to bed and you do it all again. And as long as you can pay off your mortgage, life is good. And that story works for many, many people, and that's fine. But it doesn't work for uh, many other people. It's it's too narrow of a story, um, too flat, and we too flat. Too doesn't it doesn't uh, hold as much of the uh, all that we can be. So what a myth does is it if we know. Uh, we have some sense of the myth that coincides with our experience, either of creation or, or any other experience, that places our personal story in the context of a larger story. Oh, it's not just me this happens to. This is what happens to human beings. You know, uh, when I am get lost and get off track and um, I don't know what's going on from moment to moment. I have those moments where everything seems dark. I've wandered into the forest, like all of those characters in fairy tales and myths. They've wandered into the forest. Those stories give us orientation when we don't have it ourselves. Yeah. It's interesting. As you were talking, I was reminded, are you familiar with who James Cars is? James Kars, yes, I, I think I've heard uh, at least part of your interview with him. He's uh, yeah, he, he's amazing. He wrote the, the book. The book he wrote, uh, he wrote multiple books, but two of my favorites are "Finite and Infinite Games" and "A Religious Case Against Belief," which is would have been very good uh, support for your book in many ways. Um, but in my interview with him, one of the definitions he gave of myth that I thought was absolutely stunning was a myth is a story that tells itself. Yeah. Wow. The reason I think that's relevant to our discussion is because here we all are. And without our story, we really don't have anything where we've got Alzheimer's, if anything. And, you know, the old saying about Alzheimer's, the nice thing about having Alzheimer's is you get to meet new people every day. <laughs> so they just never really get past the beginning of their story. But the rest of us, I mean, every minute of the day, if you turn on the radio, the news, or look at your phone, there's a story unfolding, you know, somewhere, somehow. And our own story is unfolding as, as long as we're conscious that we're engaged. And it may unfold even after we're what we call dead, or at least physically dead, depending on one's orientation in that regard. But I think one of the reasons that's such a powerful definition of myth is because it points to something transcendent, because I don't think any of us is likely to say, I'm the source of the whole world story or the cosmological story, or even I'm the source of you know, Donald Trump's story or uh, Madonna's story or, you know, but we're all somehow engaged in each other's stories. We're all connected. 
And so I love it because that definition really points you in the direction of the horizon, but it leaves you saying, well, who's telling the story? And that's when you really have to say to yourself, well, what is your conception of God? Because if God is source, then God is the ultimate storyteller. Therefore, the myth is really a vehicle of connection, connecting to the, to the transcendent. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, uh, you know, Joseph Campbell talks about the myth as, as uh, the way that the spiritual potentialities kind of uh, are filtered into human existence. Through the myth, we connect to the mystery, uh, to what's not known. And it, it brings those energies, those powers, those truths into our human life. You know, earlier you used the metaphor, the Buddhist metaphor of the finger pointing toward the moon. And I wanted to share something with you. I was watching an interview with Houston Smith, who I love and I've studied quite extensively. And he used exactly that same metaphor. In fact, it was an interview with Jeffrey Mishlove on Thinking Aloud. And the topic was the, uh, let's see, the traditional, the modern and the postmodern eras and the differences and the benefits and the challenges of each of them. But in the interview, Jeffrey Mishlove was asking about something uh, with regard, if I remember right, to interpretation of scripture, you know, or why people get so confused over some of these things. And Houston Smith said something really beautiful. He said, if I hold my finger up and point to the moon, it's not because of my finger that you can see the moon. It's because my arm is at the right angle. And if you align yourself with the angle, you will see the moon. So he proceeded to say, when we're interpreting scripture, if we have the right angle, then we get what the scripture is meant to convey to us. But if we're coming at it from the wrong angle, we won't see the moon. Wow. Wow. That's a great image. Isn't it? I mean, it's like if you're pointing a telescope, and you want to see Venus, you have to have the angle right. If you're one degree off and something's thousands and thousands of miles away, you're going to be many miles off target. And I think, you know, when we use that term, do you understand my angle here? It's We're really saying, are you comprehending the line of thinking or the way of perceiving I'm trying to convey to you? And if someone says yes, then we know that we have an understanding that we're in harmony together. I think all these topics are so important, which is why I really wanted to have you on the podcast and you know get it from the author, so to speak, instead of me trying to do a book review or something. Um, because it is a, I think your book is a very, very important book for today. I really, really do. Thank you. You know, my next question is on the mystical and the numinous. And today we're in the throes of what is now being called the third wave of psychedelics or a third psychedelic revival, which is well known for including mystical numinous experiences. In your book and in many books I've studied on these topics, it's quite clear that the human psyche has a need for mystical and numinous experiences. In fact, Stanislav Grof says they're as important as any form of nutrition for the human being. Could you please explain what a mystical experience is and what a numinous experience is and why it is that we seem to have a need for these experiences as a form of psychic nutrition? Yeah. 
the mystical experience. This is a word that uh, Jung was often called a mystic, and he, he didn't really like it. And it's a word that's much maligned. But really, I think that the, the idea of a mystical experience has to do with this uh, direct experience of reality, of going beyond all conceptual categories uh, and aiming towards a direct experience of something. Uh, one of the authors that I really love, uh, a theologian and a philosopher, Raymond Panikkar, talks about how uh, different uh, different kinds of people experiment with different things. You know, the scientist experiments with objects or, or things related to those objects, and the philosopher experiments with ideas. But the mystic or the monk ex experiments with themselves. They use themselves to uh, get into connection with reality with uh, something that is not uh, filtered through through the mind. And the numinous is an experience of this sort of powerful agent, something that acts on us, something that uh, we don't create, but we encounter. And, you know, we're, we we're talking before about the idea of being a machine. Human beings are not machines. We're not, we can't just fuel up with, uh, uh, just with uh, some food and some water. You know, man cannot live by bread alone. Uh, we need something that also fuels and feeds the soul, the psyche, uh, the spirit. I think about, uh, how waking life can't sustain itself without sleep and without dreaming. That there is something in us that needs to kind of go offline in order for a lot of learning and integration and healing to take place. And the way I think of the mystical experience is it's similar to that, except it's not sleep. It's, it's the other side. It's something like a different kind of uh, being awake, but again, not with the ego in place or the the conscious mind determining. Uh, it's it's a kind of uh, way of being uh, uh, connected, a kind of infusion of the transpersonal. Um, we need our everyday life to be fueled by meaning. We need to be part, you know, Jung talks about, we need to be, feel that our life is part of a divine drama, that it's not just our little drama, that we're part of that divine drama. We're talking about myth before, that we're participating some way in that myth and that there's something bigger than us, something more than just getting and spending and, and, and that kind of thing. And without that larger background, without that that bigger story, without that myth, we're compelled to seek these heightened experiences in destructive ways, addictions, uh, 
consumerism, different entertainments that, that don't feed us, that don't last. And, and Jung says, even war, war becomes something exciting because now we go, oh, something important is happening. The danger, if we don't have a connection to the, the transpersonal, will, will create destructive outlets. Yes, it's true. At this time, when anxieties are high, depression rates are skyrocketing along with suicide rates, people naturally gravitate toward religion for support and hope. Can you make some suggestions for how to choose a religion that may best suit the needs of an individual and how someone might be able to identify the religion or even group uh, within you know, any of these contexts that might be healthy and safe for them? What are, what are your sort of filtration tips for where a person, uh, tips that someone can use to lean in one direction or another as to whether or not they're in the right place? Right. I think it's uh, this idea of choice is, is tricky uh, and in looking for what's healthy and safe and what feeds us, what gives us that nutrition that we were just talking about, so crucial. Um, the 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 first kind of way and all we get are hints at least at first is what speaks to you what calls you what what uh feels like it lights you up my experience when i was needing some kind of uh, uh religious perspective i came across the Tao Te ching and that was beautiful the, it was the thing yeah it was it was an amazing experience and it gave me that sense of the the connection to the sacred um it, it didn't wasn't able to hold it over the long period i i still it's find it extremely valuable and important but there was more that that apparently i needed um but that's the first piece right what calls to you what seems to be seeking you but the other piece is this importance so we've talked about this a few times the individual the individual that anything that feels like it wants to uh, cut off the individual spirit is not healthy. Anything that says uh, the group is most important, or this this organization is most important. Anything that is not wanting uh, the full flowering of the individual as they are. Uh, is not is not aimed at freedom. It's not aimed at the kind of freedom that a healthy religion is aimed at. So, it's, is it something that's open? Right? Does it does it feel like there's room for questioning? Does it does it allow for questions, or does it want to give you answers? My take on things is that religion is not an answer. God is not an answer to any question. God is a question. God's the ultimate question. It's like, what is this all about? 
and if if that opportunity for questioning that sense of seeking is is uh allowed and encouraged there's a good sense that that's a healthy place one of the things i warn people about is whenever you're in a church temple synagogue etc and you hear somebody saying our interpretation is the only correct one that's when you're in a, a dangerous spot right anything that uh wants to merge people into one th- way of thinking one thought one perspective uh that can't function in a marriage it can't function in a friendship <laughs> it's not going to function in a relationship uh, no and I we live in a good a example <laughs> but it's you know and there are people in who in those things in marriages who try to like we're going to do things my way we're going to think my way and and it's a constant battle and if it's a battle that's not life-giving no it's not it's not facilitating love either it's not facilitating love and and the other piece for me is that we live at a time and we live in a world where you know the idea that there can be one truth uh that uh there can be an exclusive truth uh that may have been possible when we were living in small groups but we live in a world that is connected we know about these other traditions these other religions we know about people on the other side of the globe and if a religion can't handle the pluralistic reality of our world the diversity of our world it can't move us into uh uh the future as it actually exists or the the present moving into the future as it actually exists for us that's one of my concerns with all the um the censorship going on right now it's killing the diversity of human thought connection expression and it's doing to the soul and the mind what monocropping does to commercial uh, to, to farming it, it wipes out the diversity in nature which destabilizes nature and you, you know i was watching a documentary about how there's so many restrictions on college campuses and this is what kicked jordan peterson into gear with all the linguistics and you know sexual classifications and things that he thought were uh, unethical for his university to do but it's it's we we have all these groups of people that don't want to hear about anything that doesn't fit their own belief system or philosophy but i say wait a minute you know what would you rather have some nutcase who's a potential serial killer on the internet saying i'm going to go kill people because i don't like them or keeping it secret so nobody knows to be aware that they have that in the environment if we had social media when Hitler uh, tried to take the world over, we could have gotten wind of Nazism and we could have been aware that there's enough people thinking that way that we need to bring it up into our awareness and consider addressing it 
and coming together and saying, how do we, you know, soften this and how do we engage this before the dragon is unleashed? So I think with all the censorship, they're just really, um, they're doing two things. They're stopping a lot of truth from coming into people's conscious awareness, but they're also limiting our awareness of any evil other than the ones that they want to sell. Hmm. Well, there's no question that being conscious of dangers is safer than not knowing where they are. Yes. Jason, what a phenomenal interview dialogue. I really love your presence. I love your honesty. I love the depth. Your book is just stunning. Uh, it's uh, it's it's a meditation, really. I kind of had. I'm having the same experience as when I read Finite and Infinite Games by James Cars. It was like any sentence or paragraph can throw me into a deep contemplative meditation. That's one of the reasons I've been taking so long to get through it. You've triggered off mountains and mountains of my own introspections and writings, and given me insights for new diagrams for my teachings and my upcoming books. And I'm like, well, <laughs> this is like taking my own private little class with Jason here. I better <laughs> get this guy and talk to him. <laughs> well, that's, that's awesome. I appreciate that. I'm, I, I mean, I'm honored to be classed together with, with Paul Cars. I mean, that's James uh, Cars. Uh, yeah. James Cars. So that, that's very cool, but this has been just a great experience. Uh, I, I love kind of being able to dig into this with uh, someone who's thoughtful and, and just kind of, be able to go all over the map with this. So thanks for, for the opportunity to do that. Yeah. Well, what I'm going to do, if you don't mind, if you're up for it, I'll finish reading the book and I'll put a list together of concepts, topics, and discussion points that we did not cover in this podcast, but that I think are meaningful. And if you'd like to do another round, we can dive in and, and keep our exploration going because I really think these uh, kinds of things are not being shared in churches and places where they need to be shared. And I think Jung's perspective is so deep and s it's so empowering and, and freeing. And, you know, I think if people really understood what Jung brought to the world and, you know, it, the nice thing about this is you, people like you and I can take Jung's often very complex deep concepts and unpack them so that somebody can have an aha moment. And just like the, the one exercise I talked about with the making the masks of mother and father, that one thing alone, if anyone listening to that pot, this podcast just does that one thing, it can change their life forever. And that's the tip of a massive mountain of what Jung left for all of us. Absolutely. Well, that's, uh, this has been so much fun. I mean, that would be great. I'd love that. Okay, well, we'll do it for sure. Where can people find out more about you? I know your book can be got on Amazon. I got it there. Uh, are there any other websites or anything else you'd like to inform people of or offer them? You can find me at uh, jungiantherapist.net. Uh, that's my website. Jungiantherapist.net. Yeah, and uh, there's a, a link. There's a to other things that I do, uh, events that I talk at, uh, a little podcast that I have. So there's oh, a lot of information that's there too. Fantastic. And links to the book there. 
So, oh, yeah. good. Cool. Yeah, great. Well, I'm so grateful for you and, and your work and everything that you're sharing. And uh, what, a, what a fun journey we've had together. And I hope all of you listening have enjoyed it. And I want to say, as I often do, thank you for anything you buy from the sponsors. They all have beautiful, sustainable values that are totally in harmony with mine. And anytime you buy something from the sponsors, a little commission goes to the podcast to help me keep it live and healthy, which I really enjoy. And I'm grateful for your support for that. It does take a lot of time and energy to manage it and create it. And there's a whole team involved. So thank you all for contributing. I wish you all lots of love. I hope you really enjoyed a lot of the concepts that Jason shared and that somehow they touched your soul and, and feel free to, and please engage them and see if you can look at life with a little bit grander vision after hearing Jason express some of these important concepts. And Jason, once again, thank you and, and lots of love. And I look forward to uh, reconnecting for part two. Awesome. Thank you and be well. Aho, great spirit. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, Jason Smith. You can visit Jason's website at jungiantherapist.net or connect with him on Facebook at Jungian Analyst or on Twitter at Jason underscore E underscore Smith. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please check out Jason's book, Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life, available on Amazon.com and all good bookstores. Follow Paul on Instagram and Twitter at Living4D Podcast or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash Living4D with Paul Check. Watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com and get your free subscription to check videos and more at the Czech Institute's new media site, chikiva.com. Music